Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed of over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and here with me tonight, as always, is my co-host Dan Z. Frankly, folks, things are a little quiet this time in the galaxy. It's really, really quiet in the world of Star Wars and Lucasfilm these days. After the excitement from San Diego Comic-Con with the announcement of the Clone Wars returning, uh, there really hasn't been too much out there. But this is the weird time of year when people are eyeballing box scores and suddenly entertainment becomes a sport and it's like who won as in who made the most money and so far this year all of the various disney films that have been released and we're talking all the way back to black panther domestically those films have earned 2.5 billion dollars which is a lot to celebrate incredible virtually every article that acknowledged that disney is having an amazing year and you know there's so much more stuff to come but they had to, as part of their where Disney is this, so far this year, had to bring up Solo and had to bring up that it has not performed the way the studio had expected. In fact, for those of you who are keeping tabs at home, domestically it's made $213 million, which qualifies it as the sixth highest grossing film domestically for the year, Dan. If I were to open a draw and find $213 million, I'd be relatively happy. I think that might be a, a good way to look at it. it. It is strange, though, knowing that it has the, the, the moniker of Star Wars, and you hear a number like $213 million, you think, oh, that's what The Last Jedi made in, what, a week and a half, if that, or mm-hmm. less. But hey, maybe there's something to this lightsaber business. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope and remember it's it's not just what it does stateside overseas it's done 170 sold 178 million dollars worth of tickets which is great we're at 392 million box office wise of course the problem is that when the initial financial projections came out for this project people in the industry were talking about whoa you know they'll be lucky if this film makes 400 to 450 million worldwide and the fact that it's it struggled to get here, it doesn't help the situation. Then when you mm-hmm. factor in the 200 to $250 million production costs, it's hard to talk about this as, as a financial success. But but here's the thing. Starting on September 14th, we have, you know, you're able to get solo through digital downloads. Starting on September 25th, uh, the Blu-ray and DVD hits was just in my target last week and saw all of the solo stuff sitting there and so again there's lots of revenue sources yet that have to be accounted for this so i like the thirty thousand foot view that's what kind of makes me crazy about us living in this twitter world where there is no context it's all instantaneous reaction right well it's it's still weird it still baffles me and i talked to hasbro about this at san diego comic-con but when mm-hmm. they released the new line of three and three quarter inch figures from Hasbro, and of course these mm-hmm. three and three quarter inch figures have been the bedrock of Star Wars collecting since 1978, because 77 mm-hmm. they didn't really quite come out yet. They they still haven't released an individual Han Solo figure, or Lando Calrissian figure, which it's the movie's Solo, and Lando is mm-hmm. one of the main characters, and they haven't released them individually. You can get them in packs or with a vehicle or have you, but. 
it just seems so odd to me how this was sort of handled. The way typically these things are done, at least on the merch side, is that six weeks out from the release of the film, there's the first wave of merch. And I know with the Star Wars films, it's actually closer to three months, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You get that first wave. And then you get the second wave that actually hits with the release of the film. Right. Uh, and then, in theory, there's a third wave that arrives with the Blu-ray. Of course, the problem here was always that Last Jedi was opening in December, and that's already you know a fairly complicated period for retail because of course that's the holidays and anything that's going to be on sale for the holidays is hitting store shelves in august september anyway so the notion was that solo kind of got a smaller retail program largely because they anticipated that a lot of the jedi material would still be sitting there which is true by the way yeah the merrimack premium outlets up here in new hampshire we have a Disney store slash outlet. So it's fascinating because you get to watch the new stuff come in, but you also get to see the other stuff remaindered and, and things come in that didn't sell elsewhere. They have a startling amount of Star Wars stuff that's been discounted. I was actually sort of walking around trying to get a sense of what had been discounted. And among the things were, for example, Kylo Ren costumes. But these were the Kylo Ren costumes with the mask, which the character seems to have lost in mm -hmm. Last Jedi. Likewise, there were Wookiee outfits and there were solo jackets, but it's hard not to look at that and think, well, of course, school is about to start. And the place was filled floor to ceiling with, with backpacks, which is what kids use these days to take their books to school. And of course, right in the, the middle of that were these wonderful, detailed Star Wars-themed backpacks that were selling at full price so it it was kind of hard to get a handle on what was actually going on but i well the other piece of news that just broke today eric eisenberg out of cinema uh, blend was doing an interview with uh production designer neil lamont over the course of this interview lamont revealed that he and his team and, and we're quoting directly from eisenberg's article at Cineblend right now we were just starting work on another Star Wars spinoff. And yeah, we were making our mark on Tatooine, which would have been interesting. And there were also going to be some new galaxies, but that got shut down. So hopefully if, if that project comes back, we'll have a chance to be able to go further with that. Reading between the lines here, it's Tatooine. And you and I both know that the two standalone projects that were supposed to follow Solo, one was Boba Fett. And the other one was the Obi-Wan Kenobi movie. You have to assume that from a retail position, which do you think would have sold, would sell better? I mean, I know I think, the fans yeah. are crazy about Boba Fett. It's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be Fett. Mm -hmm. Of course, Boba Fett's armor was first revealed in the Star mm -hmm. Wars holiday specials we talked about on the last looking at Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. And he's widely considered uh, one of the most popular, if not the best, Star Wars action figure ever made, even mm -hmm. though there was all these reports of a rocket-firing backpack that actually mm -hmm. was just a prototype and was never sold. So if anyone tells you they had one, they're not telling oh. the truth or they're remembering incorrectly because those mm -hmm. didn't exist. But Fett has always been this wonderful character, this iconic costume. I think that would have been the way to go. I mean, Obi-Wan would be great, but ultimately mm -hmm. it's just a brown bathrobe and a lightsaber. 
<laughs> and hey, wow. I have coffee okay. with Kenobi. That's my bread and butter, but it's just the truth. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's just cut to the chase there. I mean, <laughs> and I get that. And in fact, there's a number of people I've spoken with at Disney who have grumbled quite a bit about they really would have liked the Boba Fett movie but for various reasons I mean remember the Boba Fett movie was supposed to be the project that followed a Rogue One you were actually at the Star Wars celebration at the Anaheim Convention Center when yeah they pulled the second speaker who was supposed to be there oh he can't be with us today you know uh, Mr. Trank Josh Trank yeah he yeah. just, just finished with the um, lessons of our Fantastic Four film and I guess there were just enough stories about how things had gone south on that, that Lucasfilm or Disney, I'm, I'm not sure which, kind of lost confidence. And so Solo got moved up, occupied the spot while they looked for somebody else to take this project on. And that there's still people at Disney for the very same reason that you mentioned, you know, the, the wonderful costume, the top-selling action figure. It's like, that should have been how we started this. And then we should have done the Obi-Wan movie, which, again, now circle back to that story two weeks ago. Ewan McGregor's out thumping the tub for Christopher Robin. And given this is a Walt Disney Studios production, what a surprise. He ends up on ABC on The View, sitting down talking with the ladies. And invariably, while he's there, you know, one of the people on the panel asks him if he's interested in reprising his role from the prequels and putting on that brown bathrobe again. <laughs> That's going to be a hashtag. He actually says... Well, I would totally do it. There's no plans to make a movie like that, as far as I know. But I'd be happy to do it. There must be a good story to tell, though, if you're going to do a spinoff. And which confuses me, Dan. Yeah, I still don't believe that there's a story there. And we've talked about this before as well. But there are a number of one-shot comics out in the Star Wars main title that is a canonical book. It's not that issue 53 was just released, so it's you know it's been out for a couple of years. And a number of those issues deal with him protecting Luke from afar. And mm -hmm. essentially how it works is Luke never sees Obi-Wan. And it's usually Tusken Raiders or something like that. And there's always mm -hmm. some sort of a long uh, glance between Obi-Wan and Uncle Owen. You know, get out of here. You're causing trouble. And, you know, hey, buddy, I'm just doing what I can. And, and there's just not a ton you can do. Now, that being said, a good storyteller can do anything, can make anything happen. And obviously there there's some some things you can do there, but you have to be careful because Luke can't know what's mm -hmm. going on. You can't mess with what happens in A New Hope. And I don't think that they would. The story group won't let that happen. But mm -hmm. I just feel like there's got to be something else. I mean, obviously they're wanting to mine the original trilogy as much as possible. That's where all mm -hmm. the standalone stuff has come from. That's where the ultimate bread and butter is. But still, I don't know. Clearly, someone at Lucasfilm thought, whether it was a story pulled from one of the comics, that there was potential here. Because back on August 17, 2017, The Hollywood Reporter it puts out an article that Lucasfilm is in talks with Stephen Daltrey. He's the guy who helmed Billy Elliot and The Hours. And they're in the early phase of discussions to have Daltrey come in and direct a Star Wars story. So again, not one of the... Skywalker Saga, but a standalone story that would be built around Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now again, we're talking August of last year. Now, that same month, Christopher Robin begins production over in the United Kingdom. 
a Walt Disney production. You've been to film sets, Dan, right? You've seen how they operate, how it's hurry up and wait, people sit around waiting for the camera to be positioned or, you know, there's an issue with a costume. So there's a lot of time to kill and fill and people are normally sitting around reading newspapers or the trades. In between film setups, nobody was reading the Hollywood Reporter, especially when it had a front page story about a possible Obi-Wan Kenobi movie <laughs> and bothered to sort of walk it over to, to you and as he's in his makeup chair, he's like, hey, did you see this? It seems impossible that that didn't reverberate. It just seems impossible. See, the same thing here. And especially when you consider as far back as February of 2013, and that's just four months after Disney said that they were going to require Lucasfilm for $4 billion. Ewan is out there talking about how he'd be up for playing Obi-Wan again in a new Star Wars movie. At the time, he's out doing publicity for Jack the Giant Killer, and he's talking with a reporter for MTV, and so the topic of Star Wars comes up, and especially somebody who's, hey, would you be interested in doing a standalone Obi-Wan movie? And here's what, I'm quoting directly from the MTV interview here. He says, I think it, it's a good idea. The last one I made, episode three, before Alec Guinness, uh, this this period where Obi-Wan's in the desert, that, that might be win my window to tell a story there. Then he continues, he said, I don't know what Obi-Wan did in the desert. We could make stuff up. Could be quite exciting. I'd be up for it, for sure, of course. Well, sure. Okay, the one thing that, we, that I do want to point out about all this is, well, I mentioned there have been a couple of issues, or yeah, literally comic book issues, of him mm -hmm. looking over Luke. And there is a non-canonical Legends book called Kenobi by John Jackson Miller, which, by the way, is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. And if the movie was anything like that novel, it'd be a blockbuster for sure. But we're talking about in-universe, the end of Revenge of the Sith to the beginning of A New Hope is a 19-year window story-wise. Mm -hmm. So for 19 years, Obi-Wan Kenobi's on this desert by himself, learning how to commune with the Force and survive beyond the Force as Qui-Gon teaches him that. Mm -hmm as we learn mm -hmm. at the end of Revenge of the Sith. So there is a lot of material there, and surely he, he wouldn't turn it down. I mean, besides the paycheck, you'd like to think that he enjoys the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi and being in the Star Wars universe, even though recently he did say he forgot which Darth he dueled in The Phantom Menace, but we'll just kind of ignore that. I'm going to treat that as my life preserver in this conversation. I'm going to assume that if he could forget which Darth he fought, yeah. he could have forgotten that he was talking about being excited about revisiting the role of Obi-Wan over five years ago or the multiple times that he's talked about it since. But but right. again, because I like this guy who Me too. actually, I, did, did you get to see Christopher Robin, by the way? I did, and I absolutely adored it. I thought he, and I well, thought he was wonderful in it, too. When you think about <laughs> how impossible a role that was. Yeah interacting with realistically believably with stuffed toys nancy and i were were lucky enough this is almost 20 years ago now to get to go to the visual effects society these were typically two and three day long affairs where all of the folks who did visual effects in the industry gathered together and sort of shared notes with one another. And it, it was wonderful because they would close the doors to the theater and proceed to tell all of these stories that people in the industry really shouldn't tell to. When you work in special effects, it's very much like working at Los Alamos. You work in total secrecy. There's often a high amount of pressure. You know, you're often dealing with a huge budget. 
and every so often you find out that you're building a bomb. And one of the, the presentations we went to was for Attack of the Clones. And they showed, I had to say, 15, 20 minutes of poor Ewan McGregor on these green screen stages where he's dealing with the folks who are growing the clone army. Oh, the, the Kaminoans from uh, the planet Kamino, yeah. Well, here's the thing. The, the Kaminoans were typically played by an actor who had a hat on that had a tennis ball at the top. That's right. They were very tall characters. That was Ewan's sightline. And he had to spend days in this vast green sea, sometimes reacting to nothing or running through a setting that would be added in post-production months later, if not a year or more later. And his dedication, the fact that that character works at all, given the, the situation that he shot under... To get to see the finished film, I was that much more impressed with what he'd done. Not and not everybody in that in that prequel trilogy w- could say that. Quite honestly, and you've no, got nothing but incredible no. talent and Oscar winners and nominees. But yeah, he he has always been a bright spot. He he really has. And especially now that they seem to be committed to the notion of practical sets and practical props, and I would love to see him get a chance to make another run at this character. But get to do it kind of like Sir Alec, where it was more physical sets, more props, that sort of thing. I bet he will. I'm sure he will someday. Here's hoping. Which brings me to our next part of the show. Now, we got a piece of reader mail about Willow, I want to say. This is a note from Andrew. And it starts off by saying, hello, Dan. I I first want to say that I love your podcast with Jim Hill. Oh, that's nice. So thoroughly entertaining. On your last podcast, you were talking about Solo, which I loved, and how Ron Howard crafted a tight, funny, and thrilling movie, much like he did with another Lucasfilm movie, Willow. When comparing those two films, you can see how Ron was the right choice and should have been there from the start. Much like in Solo, Howard managed to make you care and root for a scoundrel like with Mad Mardigan. And correct me if I'm wrong, but did Lady Proxima's voice sound eerily like Finn Rizel's? Hmm, interesting insight. Yeah. Can you do a podcast about Willow and its impact at Lucasfilm? And also, can you one day touch on the Lucasfilm touring show to Japan from the early 90s that, that showcased Willow? Well, why don't we start with the the touring show? Have you ever managed to see any of the stuff for that? No, I, I had not. In fact, until Andrew had mentioned this, I, I would, had not heard about it at all. The full title was the George Lucas Super Live Adventure. Uh, it actually opened in Japan April 27th, 1993 in, in Yokohama. It toured for five months There was talk of taking it to America. In fact, at one point, there was some very serious discussion of bringing it to Vegas. Mind you, this was five years before the the Star Trek experience opened at at the Hilton in January of 1998. But this was when Vegas was sort of flirting with the idea of we're going to make ourselves family friendly. The other thing, though, I just had a friend at Disney confirm, and this is 93. The show closes September, October of 93. Disney's MGM Studios has been open for about four and a half years at this point. They're still in the process of building Tower of Terror. They need more attractions for that park. 
And I guess they actually got into conversations with George about maybe they could bring this over. Maybe they could put up a tent. And where they did the lights, motor, action show was where they were talking about, well, maybe we could build some sort of temporary arena for this thing. The show itself, the scale of this thing is insane. At one point, they land a full-size Millennium Falcon on stage. There's a, a part of the show where they bring out, from Tucker, the multiple classic cars. And the glue that sort of held this whole thing together was Willow. When they were running it around to the various tour stops in Japan, they just began to realize, largely because Lucas had insisted on this amazing show that, that touched on so much of Indiana Jones. and But it was hundreds of containers of props and costumes and this huge cast and this huge behind-the-scenes support team. And it just, there was just no way this thing was ever going to turn a profit. That was the other thing, frankly, Disney was sort of like, well, you know, we'd love the Millennium Falcon idea. We love the Indiana Jones part. We don't necessarily need the Tucker sequence and or <laughs> the American graffiti. That's, that's really a, a universal property. And George kind of got miffed. You either embrace this entire show that I created or you don't take it at all. In the end, that's what happened. It all ended up packed away. And in fact, it's probably in the same warehouse where the Ark of the Covenant is right now. You hadn't heard of the show before or hadn't seen the stuff that's out there online about it? or No, not, not anything until this was mentioned here. Okay, well... Some of the stuff that Lucas tries that doesn't necessarily work is almost as fascinating or more fascinating to me to, than the things that, that do work, the things that do flower and become these enormous franchises. I may be one of the only people on the planet who actually has a soft spot in his heart for Howard the Duck. Or Radioland Murders. Oh, even Radioland Murders. Yeah, that was kind of fun. What's amazing about Radioland Murders is that if you go back through the trades, the people who were supposed to be in Radioland Murders, I want to say the very first cast of the movie, it was going to be Steve Martin and Cindy Williams. And obviously, you know, that gives you some idea of when this got started. I want to say George was talking about Cindy doing this as a follow-up. To American Graffiti, and and Steve had just basically broken in. You know, the thing about Radioland Murders is it really is George showing his love of Abbott and Costello. Yeah, I want to say there's an Abbott and Costello movie called Who Done It that was yeah. set at a radio station, and basically this really is what Radioland Murders is. It's kind of this his affectionate salute to these dialogue-heavy, snappy-paced comedies from his youth. I mean, George sat in front of the television, and everything that came in went into his head and came out in far more entertaining forms. I mean, even Howard the Duck, even today. For example, when you look at the creatures that, that came down through the telescope... That's go motion. That's George trying to move forward. Stop motion. He's always been an innovator. I mean, heck, he's responsible for Pixar in a way, isn't he? Oh, totally. Always makes me kind of crazy that Steve Jobs always tried to sort of take credit for for Pixar. And in fact, what's interesting about Steve Jobs taking credit for Pixar is then you'll never see this in the official Steve Jobs biography. But 
right up until Toy Story came out in November of 1995, Steve Jobs was trying to sell Pixar. He tried to five different folks, but he was stubborn. He wanted to get back all of the money that he had put into Pixar. For a lot of years, Pixar only made the shorts. Pixar started out not as a animation studio. It, it created ways that you could render animation. In fact, the shorts were supposed to help sell the machines, you know, demonstrate what the Pixar animation system could do. Jobs just got tired of Ed Catmult and John Lasseter coming to him and oh, we need more money for a short because we're going to SIGGRAPH next year. And it's like, these shorts don't make me any money. At one point in, in an effort to recover the cost of making the shorts, he forced the people at Pixar to start doing animation for TV commercials. You can go online right now and take a look at some Tropicana commercials that are very entertaining because they're yeah. Pixar. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's the thing. Once, once Toy Story came out and was this monstrous hit, and it was suddenly Jobs changed his tune. Oh, I've always been supportive of these people, and I love what they do. And he went to Disney, and, and at this point, Pixar had a three-picture deal with Disney that and he negotiated a new five picture deal but he was smart enough to make one of the very first terms of the deal that on all of the advertising the Pixar name was just as large as the Disney name and that Pixar would get 50% of the profits as opposed to god I want to say on the original Toy Story they were only getting 5% it was a pretty lousy deal, but Jobs was a, a tough enough negotiator and, and sort of held Eisner's feet to the fire and got this amazing deal. And that's it, it's pretty much when Jobs was really in Pixar's corner, when Pixar became Pixar. But, but George was the guy who early, early on, when looking at CG and how impossible the expensive it was to do and how time-consuming and he... I want to be in that space. Always pushing the envelope and, and never, I mean, never quite getting the credit he deserves in those particular areas. No, I agree. Speaking of, of giving some subject the attention it really deserves, how about this? Because, again, Willow really does deserve a deeper dive. We'll give Willow the attention that it deserves, which actually will be fairly decent timing given that that will be probably just about the same time that Solo is hitting store shelves with the Blu-ray and the DVD. And, yeah. I mean, Ron Howard flat out admitted Willow was the film that made him the filmmaker that he is today, that he just described how getting tossed in the deep end and having to shoot battle scenes with 500 men and having to, to shoot around a castle and stop-motion dragons that wouldn't be in the scene till a year later after they'd actually been... Said, you know, basically said, look, once I made that movie, I was everything else I made seemed easy. You know, that there was nothing that terrified him. And you have to assume, given the situation he was put in with Solo, where it was like, hey, would you like to take over this movie that's been shooting for five months already? That can't have been fun. No. But how about this? Well, why don't we shut down this episode and the very next time we'll do a deep dive on Willow. I love it. I love it. And in the meantime, if you would like mm -hmm. to hear more uh, Star Wars on a weekly basis, be sure to catch me over at Coffee with Kenobi on iTunes and anywhere else you can find podcasts. 
that is an excellent suggestion because Dan does good stuff. As for, for my end of the biz, what is it? I've got the, the Disney dish thing I do with Len. I've got the fine tuning thing I do with Drew. Uh, Universal joint with Dustin. So uh, basically I'm podcasting far too often. This and Marvel is, too. Oh, 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 and Marvel. I forgot the Marvel one. Okay. <laughs> now I'm in trouble because that's the guy who edits the show. I can't Aaron, you can cut that part out. All right. Anyway, folks, uh, for Dan, I, this, this is Jim Hill so in the doghouse at this point. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with a new Looking at Lucasfilm soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network. <laughs>